Let's pray together. God, we look for you to be our teacher this morning. May you guide us through delicate territory where perhaps we would be closed. Will you open us up now? We're ready for you to be our teacher, to be our life changer, and for you to take residence in our hearts in a brand new way today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's dismiss our old... Well, good morning, everyone. I'm really glad that you're here. Happy New Year to all of you. And um, I'm really glad that you're taking in this series, too, at the beginning of a year. You know, what we found is that um, January is a great time where everybody's recalibrating. And there's been some times, I think, through God's kind of providential oversight that our series in January have set, a, set the table for us for the rest of the year. They've been kind of an opportunity for us to do values adjustment. And I think this is going to be one of the mutiny is going to, I think, have a, a vast effect on our little subculture here at AC3 if we'll take all this stuff really seriously. So for the next month, we're going to expose a problem that I think everybody has, that I think everybody knows that we all have, uh, but we don't talk about it too much, or perhaps if we do talk about it, we don't like to admit it, or we maybe excuse it, or we like to justify it. And the problem historically begins actually a while ago. So the problem we're going to address in this series really wasn't a problem back 110, 150 years ago. Back then, it was progress. And so when it was progress, it wasn't seen as a problem. Progress was good. And we progressed in knowledge. I mean, we have achieved, we have acquired prodigious amounts of knowledge as the human race in the last 150 years. I mean, we got to know stuff. And knowing stuff spawn progress. So we learn how to grow more food and grow it more cheaply. We learn how to live longer, healthier lives. We learn how to eliminate a lot of back-breaking labor. We learned in progress how to refine entertainment into a science. We learn how to make miracles of communication and information available to millions of people. In fact, you go around the world, you could travel to Malawi on the streets of Lilongwe, their capital city. Sixth poorest city in the country, or country, uh, sixth poorest country in the world, and yet every other person in, in, in that country or in that city is talking on a cell phone. I mean, it's all good, right? I mean, technology and progress. Well, we're over a century into the progress experiment, AC3, and we're starting to see cracks in the foundation. Why? Because we are set on an unsustainable path. And why is that? Because human nature, being what it is, we found a way to take something good, like the acquisition of knowledge and the progress that results from it, and break it. Human nature, being what it is, being the petulant two-year-old that it is, we found a way to twist progress into something that breaks us. So to give you a, a bit of a picture of it, I, I want you to imagine it like this. Imagine the human race was, was, a, was a fish. And uh, we developed a brain so big, we invented a way to make houses over the little pond that we were in because perhaps we thought it was too crowded or something. We were even so smart as fish, we thought of a way to transport our limbless fish bodies into these homes that we built above the water, homes that we managed through our intelligence and through our amazing um, technology to store with limitless supplies of food and space and entertainment. And there in our beautiful homes, we, the smartest, wealthiest, most entertained, and best fed fish in the world, started to suffocate. Why? Because we still have gills, silly. We weren't made to live in houses above the water. Just because we can make these homes doesn't mean that we were made to live in them. 
And I want you to think about that. We are the fish who learned how to live out of water. And truth be told, we are suffocating. What's my proof? Well, just look around and you see some of the problems that human, humans have always had. And as progress has increased, these problems have increased right along with it. In fact, some of them gotten exponentially worse. It's almost like you could bar graph them and they're going together in an exponential curve up. Problems such as debt. I mean, it's crazy, right? Debt is out of control. Nationally and personally. Divorce. Suicide. Certain diseases, including AIDS. The gap between rich and poor. Pornography. Sex trafficking. Litigation. Bankruptcy. Incarceration. One in a hundred Americans is in prison. Uh, Substance abuse. Addiction. I mean, AC3. Look around the world. Look around at the world that progress has built for us. And maybe, just maybe, we weren't made for it. I mean, maybe we weren't made for 24-hour Walmarts and endless stuff. We can, but we were made for it. Maybe we weren't made for 24-hour media saturation. Maybe we weren't made for a marginless pace of life. Maybe we weren't made to sit on a couch and eat our emotions. Now, we can, but maybe we weren't made for it. Maybe uh, we're lucky enough to be in a situation on planet Earth where we can have all those things. Maybe we're smart enough to make them, but just because we can doesn't make it right and doesn't make it align with our design specifications. Like fish, out of water, and we can, but we're not made for it and we're suffocating. So please understand something right out of the gate and maybe some little twitch happened in you and we started with the slides at the beginning of the service and you started looking at these evidences of progress and you said to yourself, progress isn't evil and I agree with you. Progress has been wonderful on so many levels. But excess is. Excess isn't new, right? I mean, it's not like it's the first Jesus talked about excess, we'll get into it. So excess isn't new, it's just that um, with progress, excess has been made easy. It's been, it's been made easy for most Americans living today to have excess. That was never true in any other era of human history. Now it's, it's been made easy, and so excess has snuck in with progress. Kind of like the Greeks snuck in with the Trojan horse. Now, what, what could be wrong with this big, beautiful horse? It's so awesome. Oh, right, there's an army inside that's lethal. Right? It's sort of like that. So let's turn to the teaching of Jesus as it relates to this first area of excess and possessions. Because if you believe Jesus, you realize that he was not ambiguous about this. He was not indifferent about this. If you learn to trust him, you realize that excess is the enemy of your soul. Not progress, but excess. And so he has a very counterintuitive mutiny that he calls you to And let's read, okay? This comes from um, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. We'll begin in verse 19. Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So, 
we'll study this more in extended, so I hope you uh, plan to stick around for a little bit. We're going to dive deep into this particular rich, rich passage. And what we're going to find out is Jesus now has set out a series of couplets, a series of side-by-side comparisons, and it begins here. We have two different places, earth and heaven. And then we have two different treasures. And so Jesus is immediately beginning to help you do a little bit of math here to associate the treasure with the place. And you ask yourself, what's different about heaven and earth? Right? And Jesus is trying to get you to see that the contrast between something associated with heaven and something associated with earth is that treasures on earth don't last. They're temporal. They're fading away. They can be stolen. They can be corrupted. They can be destroyed. In contrast, what is stored in heaven cannot be stolen or destroyed or corrupted. So Jesus is saying, little children, do the math. It's a very simple mathematical equation. He wants you to work out in terms of investment. And look at this. Any investor knows that if you're going to take a risk on something, you have to work out the ROI, right? What is that? The return on investment. You've got to work out. What's going to be the return on this thing? And guess what? The return on investment isn't always what it seems at the beginning. And that's what Jesus is trying to say. Look, the return on investment in earthly things seems like maybe that's the payday. And he's trying to get you to say, no, maybe there's a longer term payday and a better return on some other investment. Let me just give you an example, a temporal example. From 1986, that was my heyday, man, the 80s. Woo! So if you're an investor in 1986, I mean, wouldn't it make sense for you to invest in a little startup computer company that at the time had the giants, IBM and Atari and Apple, quaking in their boots? At the time, they had captured 50% of the PC market, which was burgeoning, right? It was beginning to explode in 1986. Everyone could have their own personal computer. And wouldn't it just make sense to invest in this company because everybody loved their Commodore 64? Right? How many of you owned a Commodore 64? Yeah, you can confess. It's church. It's okay. So, so I mean, w- that would just make total sense. And then Commodore decided to throw out a new model in the early 90s. Everybody hated it. Investors or uh, consumers rebelled. And the company went bankrupt in the spring of 1994. If you had invested big time in the beginning in 1986, you would have lost everything. Contrast that with another investment opportunity, also from 1986, a little company based in Redmond, Washington, that was up against a giant IBM, and it did not look that promising. They had an initial stock offering in the spring of that year, $21 a share. But if you had invested just $1,000 in Microsoft on that day, you would be a millionaire today. So you, you see that at the beginning, some investments maybe look really good, and they turn out they're not so hot in the long run. And then at the beginning, some investments don't look so hot, and they turn out to be awesome. So Jesus is saying to you, investor, beware. Invest in treasures that last and satisfy forever. Not ones that look good now, but they, they just won't pan out. That's how he's getting us to think about the acquisition of possessions, about the sole focus of our life being stuff. Now, here's what we, I think we do. I think we say, got it. And I think most of the people in this room will say, I agree with you, Jesus. Sounds really good. Uh, we must live richly towards uh, God. We must have a rich relationship with God in Christ. And those of you who follow Jesus in the room will say, absolutely, eternity matters more. But Jesus, you won't mind if we also pursue, as a key life calling, alongside of treasures in heaven, 
the fulfillment of our gusto and the having of more and the acquiring of things and the acquisition of comfort alongside of treasure in heaven. I mean, you won't mind that. Because we're agreeing with you that treasure in heaven is really important. See, I think that's what we do. I think that the little secret dark way in which we read this is to agree with it, but then immediately to contradict it. See, here's what, it, what happens. I, I think a lot of us are saying this. Um, I'll have two competing life focuses. And is that okay? Well, you say we all got to eat, Rick. We, all, we have needs. We got to take care of stuff. We have to look after shelter and transportation. Who can deny that, you know, your medical care is a basic need? You've got you to go after that stuff. How can you not? You've got to. Okay, you know what? We're going to get to that, all right? Jesus talks about that in a second. So hold those questions in suspense for just a minute. I think, though, we have to admit that perhaps this idea of pursuing two different soul focuses, foci, for our lives is a cover for something. It's a cover for the fact that we're really trying to pursue two different treasures at the same time. It's a cover for the fact that our motives are exposed and broken, that we're not just after the things that we need. We are after the security and the permanence and the satisfaction of stuff as a God. And it would be as a competing God. Because isn't that what a God promises to bring you is security and satisfaction and permanence why would anyone trust in jesus they trust in jesus for security and permanence and satisfaction well why would anyone go after stuff the exact same reason and i think that that's what's hiding when we want to pursue these things simultaneously. And I can tell you the truth about me is that's what I want to do. I want to pursue these things simultaneously. I'm driven by greed, consumerism, envy, pride, comfort, insatiability, materialism, and consumerism, and there's other things, but I want you to like me. So I'll save it, you know, for my counselor's office. Okay, friends, look, there's just in, if you if you take Jesus seriously, there's no justifying stuff as a competing focus of your life. Jesus didn't say pursue treasures in heaven more than you pursue treasures on earth. He said, do not store up treasures on earth. He wasn't just making treasures in heaven more important. He was setting the two in opposition to one another as competing soul focuses of your life. And if you need more evidence, just keep reading, shall we? Verse 24, same chapter. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other. He will be devoted to one, despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So this thing that I said we try to do, Jesus said you cannot do. This idea of having two prime uh, drives in our life, you cannot. And this is Jesus, right? He just sets these things up in, in contrast, black and white, uh, there is, uh, you know, the, the narrow road and the wide road, and there is no middle road. This is Jesus. There's sheep and there's goats. There's no hybrids. There's no shoats. There's no gopes. You know, there's just, you know, there's one or the other. It's black and white. It's, it's, um, it's either you love your brother in Christ or you're a liar. That's the New Testament. And that's what following Jesus is like, AC3. You cannot serve two masters. You can't have these things as... Two concurrent, consecutive uh, ambitions of your life. Uh, I think that what we like to do is pretend there's 50 shades of gray in this, 
And, and when asked the question, what is the dominating focus of your life? You say, well, I've got two. I love Jesus, and well, I'm, you know, I've got my ambitions here of storing up things. Jen Hatmaker puts this bluntly uh, in her book, Seven. By the way, I've recommended that. Those of you who saw the video blog uh, this week, you know that we're kind of recommending we all might download that book on our uh, reading device or whatever, and, um, and just grab it. It's, it's a great read, and we kind of grab some of our language from that, this idea of mutiny from her. And you will enjoy the book, trust me. I mean, it's very convicting, but she's super funny. So she'll, you'll just be laughing as she drives stakes into your heart. It's awesome. And, and, uh, and so really, really funny. And here's a little snippet from the introduction, okay? Jen Handmaker says, Grade down discipleship is an easier sell, but it created pretend Christians, obsessing over scriptures we like, while conspicuously ignoring the rest, until God asks for everything, and we answer, it's yours. We don't yet have ears to hear or eyes to see. We're still deaf to the truth, blind to freedom, deceived by the treasures of the world, imagining them to be the key when they are actually the lock. Now, what does she mean? That possessions are the lock. She means they lock you up. They enslave you. We think we possess them. They wind up possessing us. And this is the fascinating thing about possessions, right? As our possessions increase, so our appetite for possessions increases. Is this fantastic? I mean, this is evidence, proof positive, that what the Bible says about human nature, that we are fundamentally broken at a spiritual level, is true to me. Because you can give somebody all that he needs, Finally, take that poor person and give him three square meals a day and give him great shelter and give him a nice house. And what does he want? He wants more meals and he wants a bigger house. And give him a car to drive and now what does he want? Now he wants two cars. I mean, this is an amazing thing about us. I heard this one guy who had done really well in private business. And one time he confided a very stirring thing about himself to a friend. He said, you know what? The truth about me is this. Is that when I was worth $50,000 net worth, I was way happy. But now, my net worth is around $500,000, and I'm miserable. And the friend said, well, it appears that the solution is really simple. You need to give away $450,000. And here's what the guy said. He said, I can't. Having stuff is like grabbing an electrical wire. The more juice, the tighter the hole. And ain't that the truth? Look, Jesus painted money as a competing God, AC3. Another master. So what does a God do in your life? A God controls your value system, right? You surrender control to whatever you worship. So the, the, the question of whether the God in your life controls you is, is set. That's just set. The question now is which God will you surrender control to? Will it be the God who can control you and simultaneously free you? Or will it be the God who will control you and consume you? And that's the great question. Which God will you surrender control to? Jesus is telling you that there is a God who will not come through on its promises. And then there is a God, your Father in heaven, who will free you, liberate you. How so? Well, he tells us that too. Let's keep reading. See, the first thing Jesus said is this God who will control you and free you will free you from worry if you trust him. Verse 25. 
Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life or what you will eat or drink, about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? And then skipping ahead, verse 31. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Stop the presses right there. Jesus is trying to say something. Reality check. God knows you need stuff. So all of you who have been idling on this whole thing, I can't release, I can't release, I can't release my focus on stuff because I need stuff. And Jesus is telling you, God knows you need stuff. He made you in a physical universe. He made you with a physical body. You are a corporeal creature. That is, you are in flesh. And because you are in flesh in a physical world, in a physical universe, you need stuff. You need stuff from the physical universe to sustain your life. You need things. You were made on earth. You need the things of earth. Jesus, God is not denying any of that. But he's saying something. He's saying, look around. It's a rich earth that God put you on. It's a rich earth that God put you on. Stop for a moment. Your most basic need right now is being met in abundance. Just breathe in. Sustenance. Oxygen. And it's there in abundance for every single one of us. No rich person can hoard air. No rich person can ever sell it to you. No one would pay him a cent for it, except maybe in Tokyo. Why is that? Why is that? Because there's so much of it. We all have as much as we want. And that's the earth God puts you on. Jesus is saying, look at the earth that way. And it's not just with things like air. I mean, God is richly providing the earth with many things. We have food. We have enough food for everybody if we could learn how to share. We have enough clean water. We even have enough space, yes, even for every person to live. All seven billion of us could fit inside the state of Texas and have a quarter acre for every family of four to live on. There is enough in my Father's world, Jesus is saying, God built it to sustain you, and he even tells you why. He even gives you the motive. Why have you been placed on this rich earth that wants to, be, uh, to provide for our basic needs? Because you matter. Because you matter. He says, look at this sparrow that's here today and tomorrow is thrown away. He says, God sees all of that. And does he not care much more for you? Oh, you of little faith, he's saying, why is the earth rich and providing for our basic needs? Because you matter. And so if we could settle into the care of our Heavenly Father, we would settle back and away from worry and anxiety. So God knows you have needs, AC3. God knows you have needs. So don't hear a message like this and think God wants us all on hunger strikes or God wants us all homeless. No, here's what he's saying. He's... He's not saying all these things are illegitimate. He's simply asking, what place in your heart do all these things take? And he will bring you now to the conclusion of the matter. Next verse, verse 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So now you read that and you go, all right, good. I can settle back if I make 
treasure in heaven, my prime focus in my life, and then all these things will come trailing along behind me. Here's the question for us who live in the West. How do we seek first the kingdom of God when we already have all these things? Because you don't have to seek first the kingdom in America to have all these things. You already have all these things. Truth time, everybody. When Jesus spoke this, he spoke it to first century peasants, mostly illiterate, subsistence level farmers. And what he was calling them to was a kind of life of faith for people who were desperate in a lot of levels. And he was calling them to trust God and to be content even if they had very little. Now that principle is the same for us, but the application is wildly different. Yes? It is wildly different because for the most part, you and I, I'm looking around the room, are not subsistence level farmers. We are not having to trust God for every morsel of bread we eat. We are not insecure about where tomorrow's meals and clothes are coming from. That's not where our anxiety and worry comes in. No, our anxiety and worry comes in different forms like, how can I eat everything I want to eat in Christmas and still look fabulous in my designer jeans in January? Oh, how am I going to get that done? I'm so worried. First world problems, right? This is the stuff we're worried about. So how do we seek first the kingdom when we already have all these things? Well, we have to go back to the beginning. Back to the beginning. What did Jesus say at the start? We have to reject with strength the accumulation, the storing up of treasures on earth. So let's move to another parable, shall we? Because this will relate more to our situation. Luke chapter 12, verse 16. The farm of a certain rich man produced a terrific crop. He talked to himself, what can I do? My barn isn't big enough for the harvest. Oh, no, what a problem. I don't have room for all my stuff. I mean, this this guy is the Western American average dude. He doesn't have room for all his stuff. He's going to have to rent mini storage, right? He's going to have to get a unit or two for his stuff. So he says, verse 18, here's what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build a big mini storage unit, right? I'll have... Bigger ones. Then I'll gather in all my grain and goods, and I'll say to myself, self, you've done well. You've got it made and now can retire. Take it easy and have the time of your life. Treasures on earth. Just then, God showed up and said, fool, tonight you die. And your barn full of goods? Who gets it? That's what happens, Jesus said, when you fill your barn with self and not with God. The NIV says that's what happened to anyone who will not live richly towards God. You see what the man did? Or do you see what he rather didn't do? He did not make treasures in heaven the sole occupying focus of his life. Jesus really isn't criticizing the expansion of his stuff. That's just a result of hard work and ingenuity. That's good stuff. That comes from intelligence and ambition and and the appropriation and uh, implementation of knowledge. That's good stuff. But what the guy did was seek his own kingdom first, sought his own comfort first. He bought into the lie of excess. The more will make me happy. The more will secure my life. And Jesus exposes the lie. Are you kidding? That'll secure your life? Tonight you die. You're not secure at all. Now, who will secure your life after life? And 
shrewd investors think long-term. So how do we do that? How do we secure that life? Well, we declare war now on the life of excess. And we stop believing that we were blessed for us alone. So we start living like this. It starts to change us for a couple of different reasons. It begins to change us to release us from the bondage of worry and anxiety. That helps us immediately. But then we also start asking ourselves how if we have this excess and we start leveraging it for the kingdom, then how it will bless my brother who Jesus said was like Jesus in the world. If I do it to him, it's like I've done it to Christ. So suddenly, this enjoins upon us a whole host of different kinds of questions. What do I do with my terrific crop? What do I do with my excess? Because if we start pursuing treasures in heaven, that won't immediately take away our excess. It just means we'll have something else to do with it because we haven't just sort of established a system whereby we allow our lifestyle to chase our income. And so we'll start to ask questions like, what do I keep? And what should I share? And what is my responsibility to my neighbor? So how are we going to do this mutiny against excess, AC3? I want to give you five things, and then in the fifth one, I'm going to invite John up here to go through that little insert that you have in your program. So you might want to grab that now. Because we're going to say, maybe if we all got radical, if we all got radical, We'd start living out the kingdom dream and we'd start doing it right now. We'd all start being people who pursue treasures in heaven rather than treasures on earth. How are we going to get that done here? Here's how you declare mutiny against excess. Number one, truth check. First thing you have to do is you've got to establish what you believe. You've got to do some soul searching about that. You have to ask, what is the long-range investment? Is what is unseen more permanent and a better long-term investment than what is seen and temporal and what you can feel and touch right now? And you've got to ask yourself whether you believe that, and I bet you there's somebody in this room who has not established yet that you trust Jesus. And if you don't, then you've got to still work on the truth question. You've got to marinate on that a little bit and say, wait a minute, could I actually invest my life in things that I can't see right now? Like eternity? And some of you are saying, whoa, that is way too big a leap of faith for me. I've got to live for me now. If you begin to trust Jesus, AC3, that's when the belief thing begins to totally modify behavior. Fix your eyes on what's true. Secondly, disciplined desires define needs. If you follow Jesus, you will also begin to realize that human desires are broken. You have to discipline them. Your appetites are not just righteous and good just because you have them. (laughs) What, What crazy nonsense is that? But that is the crazy nonsense that the culture will preach to you. If you have a desire, you must fulfill it. No, 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 no. Under the kingdom, you discipline desires because not all the things you desire are right or good. Then you define needs. That means you define what's a want and what's a need. Third thing you do is decrease spending. That is, if you have an increase in income, you don't just jack up your spending to meet your income. You don't let your lifestyle chase your income. If your income goes up because of your hard work, because of your excellent application of increasing knowledge or skill, Awesome, good for you. Charles, uh, J- um, John Wesley said, earn all you can. Save all you can. Give all you can. So think to yourself about how you would keep your spending at a certain lifestyle check that you just established. This is based on what I need. And then if there's an increase in income, that's a beautiful question. God, 
what do you want me to do with my excess? Because I'm going to live richly towards you with an eye towards treasure in heaven, not treasure on earth. Fourth thing we'll do to declare mutiny is we will lend, share, borrow more. You know what we'll do? We'll live in that old New Testament uh, description of the early church where in Acts it said a couple different times where they didn't consider their stuff their own. They considered their stuff available to God for the community. That's just the way they looked at it. The ownership question was settled. God owned everything. So then they lent and they shared and they borrowed. Because that's just the way they handled it. And I think about how that plays out in my own life and I live more richly and I don't have to be a person who uh, acquires things obsessively. I'll give you an example. I mean, I love to have my driveway clean. In the springtime, every, every springtime, I get a power washer and shh, I get all the black lichen off that thing and ding, it looks beautiful new. And that's me taking care of the stuff God gave me and I think it looks awesome, but I get that done and I don't even own a power washer. How does that happen? My father-in-law owns one and I borrow his. Got a friend of mine, it just so happens coincidentally that her dream car was, is a convertible bug. She loved the idea of taking her, you know, going on dates with her husband in a convertible bug. And she's done that a few times, but she doesn't own a convertible bug. How has she got that done? Well, I own a convertible bug, and she's borrowed mine. Friend of mine uh, went across the uh, mountains the other uh, summer, and uh, he needed to tow a trailer because he was going on a camping trip with his family, but he, own, he only owns a couple little Hondas. How did he get that done? He needed an SUV. He borrowed mine. We can lend. We can share. We can borrow. We can be people who communally say that our stuff is not our own. And that's how we declare mutiny. And then here's the last thing. We can learn to give. See, possessions that we've already said are a powerful substitute God. There's a religious component to the draw, right? And if you believe the Bible, I think there's a dark spiritual force behind the draw. So if that's true, we've got two competing religions. If you wanted to declare sacrilege against Christianity, what would you do? You'd take something that was precious, that was central to the faith, and you'd just desecrate it, wouldn't you? Well, here's a competing religious system. Stuff. Here's a competing religious system. The other master Jesus talked about. God Money. How would, you, how would you do sacrilege to this religious system? How would you do something that defamed and profaned the religious system of possessions? What would you do? That, that went against everything that it stood for, the security and the ambition and the greed of it, what would you do? You'd give. How would you declare heresy in the temple of stuff? You'd give. You'd be a heretic. You'd be a heretic in this culture. And doesn't that appeal to the little rebel in you? I kind of like that. I'm going to be a heretic. I'm going to be a heretic against a culture of excess. And you know I'm going to declare my heresy? I'm going to profane possessions by giving them away. And I'm going to say, you are not my security. You are not my God. And I'm going to establish my security, my worth, in something beyond this life. So now I'm inviting John up here to give us some practical ways that we can do all of this together. And I think it's going to be a load of fun. John? 
So a few years ago, we stumbled on something that we were surprised by. We did a series called A Year of Living Biblically, and on the very first week, we said we we're going to pass out a Read Through the Bible in a Year plan, because it was the first week in January. Uh, and a surprising number of people took on that challenge. And not everyone finished it, but this is those of us who did it, especially those of us who finished it, this is what we found. It was easier when we were doing it together. When you were reading and slogging through numbers at the same time I was slogging through numbers, when you were wondering what was wrong with Ezekiel at the same time I was wondering what was wrong with Ezekiel, it made it easier. Adding any new thing to your life is like pushing a big rock up a hill. And when we're all pushing that rock together... It just somehow is easier. So we have tried to look for things like that that we can do in January when we're all in this kind of clean slate, fresh new year, what are we going to do with it place. So that's what this series is about. Uh, And it is based on the book Seven. And in Seven, Jen Hatmaker takes seven things where she looked at her life and she said, I think in these seven things, my life might look more like the culture than it does like Jesus. So one thing a month, she decided to intentionally and radically reduce that thing for 30 days so that she could break its hold in her life and reorient herself to a biblical worldview in that area. So we decided we probably can't do seven things for 30 months but or 30, 30 days each, but we're going to take four things and we're going to do seven-day challenges. And we're hoping that you will do these with us. And for those of you who are rule followers, let me give you the rules. Some of you will not care and break them anyway, but here's what we're going to do. We're all going to start on Monday morning. So the challenge starts on Monday. So it doesn't start today because you're going to need a little bit of time to prep. So we want you to have a little prep time so it doesn't start till tomorrow morning. It will go until you come back to church. So yes, the Saturday night people get off a whole half day before you. So there you go. There are two commitment levels on the card. The first one is hard, but we think anyone can do it. We think it's something that anyone should be able to commit to for seven days. So we hope you think about it. The second one is a burn the ship level commitment. And this is actually designed to take you to a place where you are living more like the 90% of the world that does not have access to the wealth that we have. So you will be living like people in Malawi and in Guatemala and in Ethiopia, you will be experiencing some of the, tr- the hardships that they have to go through that is normal life for them. So that's what that second level is designed to do. If you want to put yourself in their shoes for a week, that's what that second level is for. Then we're going to come back and we will debrief and extend it. Those of you who have done it and want to stick around or those of you who didn't want to just hear what it was like for the people who did, we're going to talk about what it was like, what was surprising, what was hard, what did you learn, what did God say to you during that time. And then every card also comes with a prayer focus. We're hoping that even if you can't join us in the challenge, you will join us in the prayer focus where we're going to pray for a specific thing each week. So, for instance, this card, this week, our mutiny challenge, what we hope that all of you will consider doing is to give away seven things a day and then buy nothing on credit for this whole week. Use your ATM card, use cash, but don't use credit so that you're not accumulating anything you can't afford this week. So, and Jen Hatmaker did this. She did it for 30 days, so she was accumulating quite a few things. And she said it was, she, the point of this is to make yourself and your stuff available to people who are less fortunate. So she had amassed this pile and was trying to decide what to do with it. And her friends came over and said, oh, let us go through it. She's like, not the point. 
not the point. I don't want you to have it so I can just come borrow it back from you. I need it to go to someone who really needs it. So think that through. When you're giving these seven things away a day, how can you leverage that for someone who needs it? Give it to a shelter, sell it, and give the money to someone who needs it. Whatever it is you choose to give away, how are you going to leverage that for someone who needs it more than you do? And then our second, our burn the ships level challenge is to wear only seven items of clothing for the week and to buy nothing at all for one week. Now we get that this is hard. That's why we're giving you a day to get ready. So here's a couple of rules for this. Underwear is free. Wear as many, many pairs of underwear as you want. We are not counting underwear. Socks are one item, not two. Shoes are one item, not two. I am choosing to do the burn the ships level challenge every week. So I've already thought this through a little bit. And I'm just going to share what I'm going to do so that you can see how you might need to think it through. I am going to do a pair of jeans. I am going to do a pair of sweats. I'm going to do two t-shirts. I'm going to do socks, shoes, and a jacket because it's cold right now. So that's what I'm going to do. I can sleep in my sweats, and I can exercise in my sweats. My shoes will be tennis shoes, even though I'd rather wear my cute shoes, because I can wear my tennis shoes to exercise and and with my jeans as I go around. And I do have a job that allows me to work in T-shirt and jeans, so that's nice. You may have to think through yours differently. But that's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to choose to do that, but so many people in the world don't have that choice. They only have seven items of clothing. So for seven days, I'm going to walk with them. And then when I look at our prayer focus, which is to pray for the needy, I think it's going to help me remember that this isn't normal. Walking into, I have three closets, three closets, and I can't fit all my stuff in them. Most people in the world have seven items of clothing. That's what they have. So what we have is not normal. And this is designed to help you reorient the way you think about it so that we don't think of our stuff as bad, but we start leveraging our stuff for good. So that's what the challenge is for. And I hope you think about it. I hope you don't just write it off. I hope you think about taking the challenge. Walk a mile in someone else's shoes. Use your stuff for good this week. So let me pray for you, and I'm going to send you out. Lord, we... We... Our strong desire, our heart's desire is to look more like you, to let you be what sets our value system, to let you be the standard by which we judge our life, by how we choose to live our life. We want to look like you when people look at us. So we invite you to take this week to reorient the way we think, to refocus our minds and our hearts on what matters to you and not what matters to our culture. Pull us apart. Make us different. Show us how you want to use these amazing blessings that you've given us for your kingdom and your glory. And we invite you to change us. We are excited to see what you're going to do. We love you, and we're so grateful for everything you've given us. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.